Hey, welcome back to the film podcast. As always, I'm still myself, Ricardo. I have existential crises, but I'm still <laughs> myself. Always joined by Marvin. Hello. And today, our guest, Rick. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm glad to be here. Yay. <laughs> we have two Ricks on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have an applause like sound drop, so that's... Oh, well, look, at this is what we can give you. Yeah. Yeah, dude. That's cool. We all have hands, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. But it sounds, it sounds like it's just two, two people clapping. It's a little forced, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks for, for being us. here, Rick. Yeah. Oh, man, thanks for having me. Um, we're going to talk about a genre that, Marvin, you're, it's not your strongest genre you're mentioning. <laughs> oh, way to put me on the spot. What's uh, the deal with you and horror, man? I don't have anything against horror films. It's just, uh, is I don't know. Just for whatever reason, it's not something I specifically have uh, sought out that often. Okay, so there's like two movie viewing moods, right? One is like I'm gonna watch something amazing and serious, right? And then the other is like I want to watch something easy and trashy, right? Yeah. So when it's amazing and serious, you have like your general stuff that includes horror. There's a lot of horror f- films that fall into this category, right? Yeah. Um, but it also just depends on the tastes that people you're with. And a lot of people I hang out with, it's like, eh, I don't want to watch a horror movie right now. So it's like, okay, fine. Uh, the other is that when I want to watch something trashy, I want to watch like a bad movie or I want to watch like uh, some sort of reality show. So I, I would rather watch like a Neil Breen movie and be able to just turn my head mm-hmm. off and go, what the fuck's happening? It doesn't matter because none of this matters. You know, (laughs) they could be horror movies onto themselves, too. That's true. I mean, like (laughs) if you take a lot of Neil Breen movies at face value, it's basically like a terrorist's manifesto, right? Like it's him (laughs) declaring that he needs to wipe billions of people off of the planet. (laughs) I I really dig horror. Rick, horror is my thing, man. There's two things I like comedy and horror and horror really shows both aspects of almost all aspects of film with like drama comedy whatever it's going to be gauged to that's why your comment marvin is kind of interesting because there's plenty of trashy horror out there if you're oh i know i know for garbage films to watch so okay so the thing is a lot of when horror is bad you can go ah but they're doing like you know they're doing kills here or it's like oh there's a freaky sequence and you're like okay that's fine there's an effort when something's like bad because it's like bad it's just because like why were they trying to do this and i don't think i really get that with horror very often with horror i'm like i understand why like it's like oh yeah this is they're just uh, this is a fun sequence they were trying out it didn't work out that's fine when you, when you watch like the room you're like why is the sex scene happening twice you know that's just bewildering <laughs> and you're talking like, about the uh tommy Wiseau room not the room yeah not Brie room Larson. starting yeah. Brie Larson. Yeah. That i accidentally watched when somebody told me it was hilarious and I was like, this is not a funny movie at all how long did you get it i watched the whole movie and i was like it's a great movie so it's it definitely worth the watch you know like, did james franco kidnap them when does he come to come out well no this um, was before disaster oh, artist oh this before you're, you're just straight looking for the room and you're like this is not funny this is not funny. I was like, I don't know how people find this a cult movie that's funny at all. <laughs> I have a recommendation. It's something that Rick put me on to. And um, mm-hmm. it's kind of really addicting. It's not a movie, but it's a TV show. I'm talking about the Netflix original show, Dark. 
Mm. I don't know if, if you've seen it, Marvin. I have not seen it, no. It's not fun. I'll tell you that much. It's not a fun <laughs> show. Like Stranger no. Things, I'm not a big Stranger Things fan, but I can admit it's a fun show. It has light moments. There's yeah. nostalgia. Dark mm. is, it lives up to its name. I mean, <laughs> you're watching one of the most interesting stories I've ever seen, to be honest. It, you just get so engrossed in this story that you naturally start without spoiling anything because you really need to watch this show. Um, you're just going to start mapping stuff out naturally watching this show to try to figure out what's going on and who's who's who in the show and everything. There's just like this real small town and this very big mystery and it focuses around the children in the town, basically. Is it like a small German town? Yeah, very small. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is like is it like village like a village town or is it like more modern still? It's it takes place like in modern times, but it there's it it goes all over the place. It, it's telling different stories at different times. Okay. Okay. okay I don't want to get too much away. Okay. But, okay. okay. Uh, it's it's um it's it t- the main storyline takes place in modern times in the small like little town in Germany, um, with a power right. plant. All right. So it's like it's like it's not it's kind of like a rural town. Okay. Um, okay. But How, can I give away the opening scene of the show? The very first pilot. I think so. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. The show kicks off with a man hanging himself, and that kind of kicks off the plot from there. If that sets the tone, it's a really good show. I, I'm I'm sure it aired there first, and then and then like Netflix bought it. I'm surprised they still haven't made like an American adaptation of the show. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised to see that sometime soon. The third season just released, right, Rick? I'm I'm on the second season still. So this is a cool thing, Marvin, without really spoiling anything. Mm-hmm. The way they released this show, the dates in the show are of different times, right? It, the show came out in 2017, but it took place in 2019. Mm-hmm. When they released season two, it's a very like landmark milestone date that happened in season one, and they released it on that day in season two. And they did the same oh. thing in season three, which was like a landmark milestone date in season two. And they're doing so that on June twenty seventh. Oh. Yeah, interesting. So it's playing That's, around with time a lot. They base their whole show on this date. It makes me feel season. like this is some sort of meta show. Which now I'm it's like crazy meta. What are they? What are they going to yeah. do with it? So okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll go it's watch. Good. I will go it's watch. Good. Is there is there a season four? You think, Rick? No, is, no, they, it has it that's not a spoiler. Okay. They they planned three seasons from the start of the show. Oh, okay, okay, okay. See, yeah, I like that. I like when you know where you're going, you don't get lost. Yep. Basically. Yeah. You yep. can you can take all the detours you want, but you know you're going to end up at the beach, you know? And you can really tell. This is a show, Marvin, that's, it's just like, I'm not going to spoil anything. It's, it's, it feels like you're getting lost watching the show because you're like, I can't keep track of all these people and what's going on. and. But that's supposed to be the feeling I'm gathering. Yeah, but everything ties together so perfectly. The writing is so tight that you're just like, every question you have, you're like, they just answered it. Every time you have a question, it's answered in like the next 10 minutes. See, see, that's actually a thing that I was going to bring up in our discussion a lot in that all of the, the, the most, at least most of the movies bringing out in my list, I, I like them because either... It's either the onset production or the scripting of it is so tight that you feel like you're in good hands, like from the beginning and you go, I know this is going to get weird, but I feel like I trust you. So I'm just going to go ahead with it. And yeah, and that's a point on horror in itself. Like horror for me, 
usually horror sets up a rule, right? There's like you're in yes. these confines. Here's the world or whatever rules the monster or event or whatever whatever you're watching. Yeah, a lot of a lot of horror films are like almost a sci-fi premise where it's like exactly. this this thing exists. Now deal yep. with it. And as long as they don't break their own rules, that that's what really draws me into horror. When it, when a horror breaks the rules, and there's a movie I hate, I'm not going to mention it just in case it's on any of the lists, but I, afterwards, maybe I'll mention it. <laughs> I really wanted to like the movie. Watching it, the the music, the just the visuals of the movie were incredible. The idea was incredible, but they broke their own rules throughout the movie, and it just drove me absolutely fucking crazy. Mm. I couldn't I couldn't watch it. I was so mad. Okay, they there's there's, right there's several horror premise. films that are that are at least within the five years I can think of them. <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> so I'm, intri- I'm intrigued. Rick, is there anything else you want to recommend? Since we're on TV for a second, there's another yeah. TV show that I love that came out January of last year, I think. And it's kind of this one. It, it was on YouTube. It was a YouTube original, which is going to be missed by just the nature of YouTube originals kind of not mm. being advertised. But it was called Wayne. I think it's actually marketed as a comedy, but it's definitely more drama. It's about a kid who like he's just this badass kind of punk kid. But his dad dies like in the opening of the show. And he he finds out that his dad had this Thunderbird, I think, basically a white trash car (laughs) that his ex-wife stole and went down to Florida. So the whole show is about this kid and this girl he meets just like fighting people on the way down to get that car back in Florida. And. I love that show. It's called Wayne, just the name Wayne. And I can't recommend it enough. It's it's really just like this missed show that was. Brilliant. Yeah, a lot I of YouTube. Yeah, YouTube doesn't promote their own shows at all. <laughs> it didn't at all. I only yeah. found this show because there's a scene with I'm a big Conan the Barbarian fan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in this one, like social media channel, somebody posted a scene from this, which is like a dream sequence kind of thing of this kid using like his imagination where Conan comes and kills, murders somebody on a bowling alley. And I was like, what the hell's that from? And so I had to like search and find out. And I ended up just watching and loving this show. How many seasons does it have? One. It, it, so YouTube did a few shows last year and then they pretty much shut them all down except for like, I think Cobra Kai and maybe something else. Well, Cobra Kai moved to somewhere else. Oh, well that's fair. Yeah. I think, YouTube did two seasons of that though, right? Yeah. Did, yeah, they did three, two and they did two and then the and then the last the new, the newest one is moving to a different network. I forget which yeah. one. Yeah. I think it's like either Hulu or one of those. Yeah. Good, maybe Amazon. YouTube's not doing justice to their TV. Yeah, shows. it's weird. It's like I think I feel like the only ones, the only shows they semi push are like the ones that are created by established like YouTube people. Like like there's yeah. actually one YouTube uh, premium show I used to, I I still watch it. They, they make new episodes. I'd still watch it. It's called Mindfield. It's by mm-hmm. it's by the the Vsauce guy if you know him. And it's essentially him just saying like, oh, what if we did the trolley problem in real life? Or what is the one thing you are born everyone is born with and is scared of? Like what is the true fear of humans that every human has, um, regardless Less. of hmm. their life experience? And it turns out instinctual phobia. Yeah. What is the most instinctual human phobia? It turns out it's the inability to breathe almost every, because it turns out that, um, there was like, there are people who are born with like, um, a a difference in their brain where, uh, they can't actually 
get new fears. Um, they just don't find things fear like uh, fearful at all, unless they cut off their oxygen supply. Then they actually freak out more than people who don't develop the, who do develop fears because the people who do develop fears over time they go okay not every situation in which i can't breathe is life threatening but for them they never build that tolerance so they go oh i'm a, i'm definitely going to die like and so that's, you're apparently yeah and you're apparently born so with that there's nothing yeah so so it's kind of like losing a sense and like having a strong, like if you lose your sight, you have a stronger sense of smell or something because you just develop that. Yeah, something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really, it's a, uh, it's interesting. And that show they actually semi promote, um, but <laughs> pretty much, like I've never heard of this. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Mind, like I started watching Mindfield because I was like, oh, I want another like sciencey show to watch. Like MythBusters is over, and you know, like I want to try something else and. There was minefield, so I was like, "Okay, let's watch this." Hmm. I already have YouTube. Is, is 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 was so good. Yeah, it was, just, it was so fun. Yeah. Grant Imahara just passed away. I know, I know. it made I me know. super sad. Like, the, the, there aren't there aren't that many celebrity vets I actually really like. Go, oh, that sucks about. But that one was one of them because he, I've I've met him at least a few times at Comic Con, and he's just a really really nice guy. So I was just like. You know, and, and pretty much everyone who is whoever talks about him just goes, there only have two things to say. He's either brilliant or he's very funny and nice. And it's just really sad that someone like that died at 49 of a random brain aneurysm. And I know, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's fucked. But. Though, on speaking of death, <laughs> you never hear anybody just say, oh, that, um, that guy's an asshole. Thank God he's gone. Uh, I mean, uh, don't, don't no, do there was enough. one. There was one. I remember it was um, oh fuck, who was it? Uh, oh shit, I can't really. It, I must have be like a politician, right? A politician. It, has to be. It, I, I yeah. think I like deleted him from my memory because <laughs> fuck this guy. <laughs> Once he's dead, who cares? Uh, yeah, like oh, thank God, man, he's yeah. dead. Well, if it gets if it, if I remember it in the middle of the podcast, I'll just yell the name out and then we'll yeah, just, yeah, with yeah. no context. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's Christopher we'll Walken. He kills that <laughs> Natalie Wood <laughs> uh, allegedly. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's fucking get into it. Um, again, our topic: psychological horror films. Guess first, your your number five, I guess, because we're counting down to one. So this was a hard list to narrow down. Um, I ended up making like a top 20 and then oh. my top five. <laughs> I rearranged it. I don't even know how many times. This feels loathed for me for a for my five, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's Videodrome, Cronenberg. Oh, film. fuck yeah, dude. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite films growing up just it, it blew my mind when i first saw it and, and every time i still watch it i'm like man this this was way ahead of its time it's funny because it's it's so much of the tech is based in the in the 80s video tape aesthetic but it it yep. still like feels correct like it, it doesn't feel like it, that's dated it you know there's like 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 if you watch like terminator now and you see like arnold schwarzenegger looking through a yeah. phone book you go oh that's a little odd Doesn't but make sense. Yeah, but for Videodrome, it's like it all completely still holds up in terms of the way you feel about it. You could see this being just an internet video that he's following. Like it's it's a very like a very relatable thing to today still. Chasing down that lost mystery video thing, this snuff film that he's trying to find. Give us a, like the quick IMDB synopsis. 
So it's basically like uh, James Woods, the main character, and he's the head of a media company and they're always looking for new shows and he gets turned on to this show by his like tech guy that picked up a signal from somewhere and the show's called Videodrome that they find but it's basically this violent it's basically like a snuff channel and he wants to find it and he meets this girl and this girl's like well I'm going to Pittsburgh and she ends up in the film so he's like on this hunt for it and it turns into this like hallucination body horror film as he's like getting closer but further away from figuring out what this is. And you don't know what's real because you're watching this from kind of his perspective, but with an outside view. It's Cronenberg style, so a gun fuses to his hand. And there's just a lot of cool scenes like that in Cronenberg style. This uh, movie, when I watched it as a kid, really freaked me out, man. This in Scanners. <laughs> he always makes movies that are in kind of like this ballpark genre. Um, oh, yeah. Existence is another. That's like a newer one that was very close to Videodrome, you know, about mm, like the yeah. video game industry. Body horror. He just likes body. Yes, like, he does. De- deforming, like crash. Crash, yeah. Let's <laughs> let's start fucking our wounds. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've forgotten about that. <laughs> yep. Even when it's not surreal, it's still surreal. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. A History of Violence. It was him. Yep, he did. That movie almost had a surreal dream sequence in it. I know. And it was just such a good, straightforward movie in general, too. Not only are the visuals like really fucking freaky, he definitely fucks with your head. It's so surreal and uncomfortable at the same time that I think your mind kind of shifts to try to like handle it, at least especially on first viewing of a lot of his things. Naked Lunch also makes makes me feel like that. The Fly was a good one. You feel like Jeff Goldblum fucking losing it. Yeah, he's going through some on. shit, man. Yeah. It's existential. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it yeah. makes him, yeah. Oh, David Koch. That's who it was. I just remembered. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, no one, yeah. no, ever, no, ever. No context, no context. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck David Koch. We're glad he's dead. Yep. Yeah. That's a great way to start us off, man. Videodrome from 1983. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Using some crazy, like, 80s, like, effects. Um, yeah. That's still, well, the physical effects definitely still hold up. That's the thing is like these movies that use practical effects hold up so much better than going back and watching di- old digital. Friend and I were just just talking about like the Matrix groundbreaking effects for its time. And then you watch it now in 4K and you're like, oh, God, yep. yeah. the Matrix doesn't yep. really hold up. I just watched the 4K as well because I, sh- I showed it to my four year old. He's almost five. It's fine. It's not. Um, that's no. It's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. My dad showed me uh, um, Taxi Driver when I was five, so it's fine. It's well, fine. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, though now my kid says um, the Matrix is making me think that this is delicious when he eats something when he's eating food. <laughs> he says the Matrix. Is, oh, food. is he just copying wow. the yeah. steak scene? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so good. I'm, I'm glad that's the thing he took away from it. Just really yep. enjoying the delicious, juicy steak. Yeah. He's like, the Matrix is telling me this is delicious. That's, that's the phrase he said before. It's amazing. That kid's that's so good. Oh, man. man. Um, and then he does Kung Fu. He did punch me in the eye because he got too close. <laughs> Look, it was my fault. I should have backed up. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, we were watching it and I was like, man, everything looks so cool. Like the Kung Fu scenes, badass. Everything looks awesome. Like everything that's non-effects uh, heavy, like 
it just a great noir like film mm-hmm. just, oh yeah really cool the it's so well like, shot like the lighting is so good in yes that movie. when they when they pull up uh when they're gonna when they first like grab neo oh, and they're yeah. gonna pull the thing from his stomach and the, it's a shot when they're under a bridge and it's raining yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's like it's like perfectly lit it's so beautiful and, yeah but then you get to the, the special effects and you're like oh, yeah. fuck, this is yeah. it's worse than the hallway when he flexes his <laughs> muscles after he's blown up smith <laughs> <laughs> it, it now looks like some sort of like Windows screensaver effect. Wow. Like it, it, it does not look yeah. very good. I'll go next, I guess. This is probably one of the last movies I saw in theaters. Um, the Invisible Man. Yeah, that's a good choice. It's just so well done, and it's mostly practical effects, like the stuff where you don't see him because the budget was so low. It was under $10 million. Yeah. Wow. Because because they're like, hey, you're, you're Jason Bloom. Just make a movie with this. I don't care what it is, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll give you the quick synopsis because it is a different take on The Invisible Man than the universal classic take on it. This woman is running away. This woman, Cecile, played by Elizabeth Moss, she's running away um, from her boyfriend, billionaire tech guy. She's escaping in the middle of the night, and she's visibly like scared of him. She finally gets away, and she goes to live. Um, with her sister's boyfriend and his daughter he's gotten away and then she gets uh news that he's committed suicide he left her like five million dollars and all these creepy things start start happening that's when like the invisible band it's hard to say manifests himself but because he's invisible (laughs) but but he, he he makes his presence known and it's definitely like a heavy heavy psychological horror movie it's like like the classic tale of like this girl telling her story of these horror horrible things that are happening her and no one believing her that was the last yeah. movie i saw in a theater and i i've watched it two more times since i've seen it it's it's a take on a story we all know that we've known for yeah. decades you know we've known our whole lives really i mean hd wells did it so long ago it's it's nothing yeah. new but this take on it was such a refreshing interesting way from like the after the first scene, you actually know pretty much exactly where it's going to go because of the premise that it is the invisible man. So yep, you go, yeah. I understand. Like, even if we don't spoil it here in this podcast, like, you know, by watching it, almost pretty much exactly what's going to happen. But yeah. you're, you sort of watch it to admire the craft of the writing and uh, the way the performances are shot. The cool thing, too, is that the movie's called Invisible Man. And you hardly see the actor playing the Invisible Man. Not because you can't see him, but because there's not <laughs> enough screen time. Like, there's literally two two scenes with him mm. where you see him and he's mm-hmm. there. It's all about her. And it's, it's really One of them well is done. he's sleeping. So it's, he's not even really yeah. in the scene. <laughs> so. in the, scene. <laughs> <laughs> the one is at the end. But um, the way they, they went about doing it, they never explained. Like, another movie would be like, well, we should ex- we should show him working on this technology that makes him, yeah. you know, like, like Iron Man the studio style. would have that note. Yeah, <laughs> let's show him like really abusing her in the beginning. But you oh. don't. You're like you're like it's just you you cut That's the movie. That's true. And it's like, boom, you know, she's getting you know out. What's going on? Yeah, and because she's so good, Elizabeth Moss, you you don't question it. You're like fuck. She's got to get the fuck out of there, dude. Yep. That's, um, I mean, that's really telling that you put this movie on a psychological horror list because. We're watching a movie called The Invisible Man, but we're actually watching Elizabeth Moth's character the entire movie. Yeah. I mean, we're watching her try to her. deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. Because you yeah. just feel her horror. You relate to her and you're like, she's going through this and like, she can't talk to anybody about it because it doesn't exist to anybody but her. She's the only one that knows this is happening. 
Yeah. It's it was yeah. really well done. And even like the technology of like why he's invisible, like it wasn't like some crazy potion or anything. It was like yeah. it's actually a suit and you know, I'm not going to give too much spoilers, but like how like and then it, just to give you enough to be like, "Oh, that would probably that's how it probably worked." And then not give you enough where you would be like, "Well, wait a minute, you know? Like let's see more of the technology." Yeah. You're like, there's, oh, there's, I, no I, I, like yeah. "There's no scene where like there's no scene where like scientist man comes up and goes like, well, the reason yeah. why this works is because you see, yeah. this technology has been developed by this optics company, and yep. the bends, yep. blah blah blah, and like, yeah. but you, but he just but he perfected it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They let fucking feel smart as a viewer. Yeah, you can just feel smart and be like, "Yeah, I got it. All right, let's move on." Like, (laughs) we understand how this works. And the jump scares are are there, but they're also really well placed. They're not cheap either. Well placed. Yeah, Yeah. because the jump scares, I hate. Because okay, I'm I'm okay with jump scares in horror movies, but I want it in the context of what is actually startling for the character's viewpoint. Right. Yeah. There's so many yes. jump scares in movies where it's just like, oh, on the screen. And it's just like, I, but that's, I'm, you're scaring me. Yes. As the audience member. You're scaring me with the sound effect and noise, but that's not a sound effect or music that the character would be hearing. Yeah. Yeah. I want the jump scare to deviate from me empathizing with the character, not because yeah. you made a loud noise. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. So, like, the the kickoff to the monster universe to universal quote unquote monster <laughs> yeah. universe was the mummy which didn't go well for universal there's two universes going at the same time right now so like they're rebooting it there's doing like a soft reboot with um the guy who did the reboot for um ghostbusters they're using paul what a terrible choice that's an odd choice yeah <laughs> he's doing he's doing like the avengers version of the monster movies where they're all together well, Monster, Monster Squad, I mean, he did Freaks and Geeks, so like yeah, Monster so Squad might not be a terrible thing for yeah. him to be on. You know what I if mean? If he keeps it as with kids, if he keeps yeah. it with kids, it's going to work out. Um, that is my number five. Marvin, what do you have, dude? Well, uh, while we're continuing the subject of, of men being shitty, uh, oh. this, is a, this is a movie I watched recently. Um, it's Netflix original. It's Gerald's Game. Basically, the premise is... Husband and wife are having marital issues. To in order to spice things up, they go to a cabin that not a cabin, some sort of like house in general that they own up in a rural area or something like a mountainous area. And then uh, they decide to spice things up by he decides to handcuff her uh, to the bed and do some like BDSM stuff. Right? Basically, he's doing like like a rape fantasy. But in the middle of that, he dies of a heart attack. Now she is stuck. She's tied up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole movie. It's essentially what if 127 hours was done from this perspective instead. That's cool. In- instead of, of fucking James Franco just complaining, uh, it's like a lady in an actually terrible situation because she starts hallucinating because she's dehydrated and stuff like that. So all these like past psychological things start manifesting. But the thing I really like about the movie is that you, it's much like 127 hours. You are given a constraint. Like the, the uh, Gerald's game is based on a Stephen King, I think, short story. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah. it, it was, you know, everyone makes pretty much every single fucking Stephen King thing into a movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But this was considered for a long time. And I don't think very uh, appropriately, but a lot of people considered it to be unfilmable because they were like, it's just a lady stuck to a bed 
for a while. Like, what do you do? But that's what makes it interesting as a movie to me because it's such a restrictive premise, yet they found a way to make it at least entertaining or at least like entertaining is the wrong word, at least like gripping, I guess, for the entire length of it. It sounds like it's hard to project because it's probably mostly her inner thoughts, right? So you have to like in the book or in the story, I guess. I believe in the story, it is all her inner thoughts, which is probably why. But they use all the tricks in the book they can to try to make it more external. Like, so she starts seeing the characters like visually, right? Yep. So that's one way they get around that. There's only two main complaints I have about the movie. Um, and one is that like, I wish the initial portion was shot like a, like a soap opera. Cause then the contrast with that, <laughs> with the horror would be great. That would be awesome. But they didn't. Uh, the other is that the ending kind of sucks. The last part, I don't know how you could film that without doing a really, really long voiceover, but that's what they do. And to me, the moment, like a long, vo- like, unless if I really trust the film, the moment a long voiceover begins in a film, I'm like, this is lazy. Like, it feels yeah. like you're not really making an effort to show instead of tell. And the movie also ends on like the most bizarre, out of left field explanation for something she was seeing. And you go, what? And the only explanation I can think of is I haven't read the short story, but I bet that's actually how the short story ended. And you know how Stephen King often just goes, and then the there's a fucking the the yep. the garbage disposal's haunted. You know, like just a random idea he just wraps comes it out. Up. Yep. Yeah, he wraps it up immediately. But in, in, yeah. and he wraps it up with like a crazy idea, and you're like, oh, yep. oh, oh, okay, I guess that's it now. Uh, so that's how the movie ends. And I go, that's odd. It, it makes for a good like ending shot, but and then okay. a lot of the symbolism surrounded around it is good. But the actual like logical explanation, because it's so over explained with the voiceover makes me go, ah, fell really flat. But the the movie itself is like really interesting. And the whole time I was like, you managed to take a premise. It's, it was like a, a good challenge. And you and you rose to the challenge like admirably, you know, like I, I don't know how many people would want to make a movie like this, but you did it. And the premise uh, is very interesting. I mean, it's yeah, that's idea. kind of why I wanted to watch it because yeah. I was like, I like watching these movies where I'm like, how are you going to make that good? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, seriously, like, like yeah. there's that old movie. I think it's by Brisson where it's just like someone described it to me as um, it's, you know, the man, uh, a man escaped. I think it's a Robert Brisson movie. Um, and uh, I, I had someone describe it to me as, oh, it's literally you just methodically watching someone escape a prison. Like, there's no story. It's just like step by step how he does it. And you're like, okay. And then you watch it and you're like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, there's, there's, it's not, it's not like dry or boring at all. It's like super awesome. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's why uh, I decided to put on this list because I, I like the mechanics of how it all works together. And it's just a fun, uh, uh, fun take on something that should be a really limiting idea. So, continuing on the Stephen King. Slash oh. Dr. Sleep uh, loop. My number four is The Shining. Stanley Kubrick 
Stephen King story, Jack. I mean, this this movie has everything. I don't even know how it's this low on my list, honestly, but that's kind of where it fell because it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I had it on my list and then I was like, ah, someone's going to have it in the list. But then <laughs> I did that too a lot. I was like, somebody's going to have this, but somebody has to have this. So I made sure yeah. it was on mine. This movie I just rewatched recently because I got the 4K Blu-ray uh, oh, nice. of it, uh, which is beautiful, by the way. And it sounds amazing. Great, great audio this movie is so goddamn creepy dude it's so good (laughs) that's the thing like there's just something about kubrick movies at least for me when he does creepy i it's right on the verge of also of it being hilarious to me like when i (laughs) watch especially when i watch the shining and clockwork orange clockwork orange definitely has that humor aspect yeah Yeah. but even like even like shining like like spoilers the scene where he he leaps out from behind the pillar with the axe and swings (laughs) it i just i burst out laughing whenever that happens but there's other parts that are like horrible and creepy you know and it it, it mixes together like like in a like in a stew no that's a good point marvin because one of my favorite scenes is also hilarious where he's like he's like stalking her up the stairs with a bat in his hand and he's like i'm not gonna hurt you I just want to bash your brains in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's something it's something about the the energy that Jack Nicholson has where you just like I I can sense because he's so tired, like as an actor, like because he because that's how Kubrick, he he runs his actors through the ringer before he starts actually shooting. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, so you can feel how exhausted he is and how his that line is being said with such mirth. He's like, yeah, I'm going (laughs) to. Yep. <laughs> um, so, so for someone who hasn't seen this, give like the rough IMDb like description of this. If someone hasn't seen this, they need to see it immediately. But it's basically a writer takes his family up to a giant hotel, this huge hotel that he's going to watch over for the winter because it closes down in the winter because you can't get in and out on the roads. And it's basically just about this writer losing his goddamn mind trying to write, <laughs> and he just ends up you know, becoming this homicidal maniac, basically, which is just his family. He's seeing ghosts and visions and all this stuff in the hotel, you know, cause him into more frantic. The hotel itself is like a character. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. yeah you're right. Yeah. The hotel is a character because there's bartenders and the maze. It's incredible. The maze yeah. in the back of the hotel. And it's Kubrick's. It's one of Kubrick's. Kubrick loves wide lenses in general, but... This is yeah. one of this one of the times where his use of wide lenses isn't for distortion, but to kind of like show symmetry, and it looks really beautiful. Like there's a lot yeah. of times when using wide lenses to make it look like like really really uncomfortable, but it does that here too. But like you also just admire how really nice this hotel is, <laughs> the way yeah. he shoots it with all these vertical lines and like these panning shots that really like they they really respect the architecture as it's going by, like by not like. I tilting and stuff it's it's an interesting uh application of the way he usually likes to shoot in this type of space stephen king did not like this movie right if no I'm- he hated it right he hated, he hated it, it yeah yeah he to the point where he wanted he he basically commissioned a made for tv uh miniseries of it did that ever air oh yeah oh yeah did. have you not yeah, seen it did. did it really yeah. i have not oh seen man it. it's it's like Imagine Wishbone doing like a TV friendly version of The Shining. Yeah. And he even has a happy ending. So. What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Jeez. 
I think it's the, the same the, crew that did that made Rose Red for him as well as a mini miniseries on ABC. Wow. Yes, I think it is. Yeah, I'll have to so, look that um, up. You were talking earlier about how every movie has that weird feeling, every Kubrick movie. And I almost put, and I, I'm going to say this because no one put this on their list. I know they didn't. Um, <laughs> I almost put Eyes Wide Shut on this Did list. Did you really? Mm. Yeah. I almost, that passed by me. I didn't, it didn't make my list, but I was, I debated Just it for me. a second. And I mean, I, it's not, it, it's not in the ballpark of psychological horror, but the way it makes you feel, it psychologically haunts you. <laughs> Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you it's feel one disgusting of, and dirty after watching yes 100 yeah. and for the longest time like i didn't know where uh, so i really like stanley Kubrick, but i didn't know where i stood in like my love for his movies so i watched it when it first came out and then i rewatched it just maybe like two three years ago and i realized it's my favorite stanley Kubrick movie Oh, interesting. Yeah, just because of the way it makes you feel. Like, again, you were talking about how he, you know, Stanley Kubrick is notorious for doing a million takes. Mm-hmm. And he, he really, like, he himself is a psychological horror. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, psychologically tortures actors until he gets a performance that, to be honest, you couldn't get. You couldn't get jack nicholson to give this performance no. if he hadn't done a hundred takes of him opening a fucking door <laughs> and i get it like like as someone who wants to make movies and like i get it i don't want to torture people like that but sometimes that's the only fucking way to do it dude you know like if you want that effect, emotion yeah yeah, yeah. don't and be like the wachowskis in the matrix sequels and do the no, same no. thing because no no because like that's that's unnecessary there <laughs> no but like in Eyes Wide Shut, it's the first time an actor, I think the first and only time, an actor has had an open-ended contract with no end date. So like, what? Tom Cruise, wow. yeah, Tom Cruise signed up, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman signed up for the, for the movie, and they didn't have an end date. They were going to be done when Stanley Kubrick said they were going to be done. In fact, this part is weirdly chronicled in a Scientology documentary oh. where Miss Cabbage <laughs> Was freaking out because he had lost track of Tom Cruise. Because Tom, because Stanley Cooper was like, "I don't, you don't talk to fucking anybody unless I tell you to talk to somebody." So he was, he was just like, that was a period of time where he wasn't involved in Scientology because he was just isolated with fucking Stanley Cooper, and he, Miss Cabbage, was like freaking out that like he couldn't have contact with fucking Tom Cruise, and he thought he had lost them for a while. Well, Kubrick almost um, saved him. Yeah, almost, almost did. We found almost. the cure. Yeah. It's Kubrick. Uh, more Kubrick is the cure. Um, and it's the first time that someone's had an, like an open ended contract like that where there's no end date. And I was lucky enough when I was in this, I was involved with this theater group. I had Sidney Pollock come and speak to us. And like that was like the, f- the first and only question I asked was like, oh, how is it working with uh, Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> and, and he was like, oh, he's like, yeah, he's a genius, but he's like, there's no reason to do that many takes. Like their scene, the Sydney Pollock scene where they're playing, where they're playing pool took months to film months. Oh man. That's months. That's crazy. I feel like he's one of those directors, I think who went to the extreme because he knows it'll work, but, and he, and he he just feels, I think he just doesn't feel confident until he knows he's taken it really extreme. I think that's just, that's the type of director he was like, I know this lighting could work, but I'm going to invent new lenses so I can shoot this entirely with candles, yeah. you know, like, 
But like, he also wasn't like that with every single thing. It was only certain, like, he wasn't really like that with, like, Full Metal Jacket, you know? No, I think that's just when he gets obsessed with a certain idea. Yeah, yeah. Then, yeah. Then, yeah. But Full Metal Jacket also, I think, part of that is because the cast is so big, he can't really have as much control. Yeah. So he's, yeah, yeah. and they're all over the place. And Vincent D'Onofrio is like wild. Um, he's not yeah, a very controllable yeah. actor to begin with. No. Yeah. So like, like he wouldn't even redo the take where, uh, spoilers, he shoots himself in the head. You know, like they had <laughs> to actually figure out a way to make that work, even though uh, it technically wasn't shot correctly. And then the way they fixed it is by skipping a few frames where you could see the blood spl- uh, shooting in from the side. Hmm. They actually oh. just skipped a few frames to make that work. In this and in Eyes Wide Shut, you see the goddamn exhaustion in their yeah. eyes. Like It's like, so real. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not, there's no, you can't act that type of like, we've done this a million times. <sighs> We're just walking down the street angrily and you could tell he's actually really angry. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> it feels like almost like he's given, like he's taken all his will out of his body. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like a limp fucking body dude jack nicholson was crazy through the making of this movie oh yeah his it's fighter. like it's, yeah his, his mind was like deteriorating <laughs> yeah 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 i always feel he's bad when i see a shelly duvall scene in it because i always i, I can tell she's so tired like yeah. i can you can see it with every step like she's just trying to give him breakfast and you could tell she's so tired <laughs> like, yeah yeah <laughs> um there's there's so many goddamn documentaries about this movie and like weird conspiracy theories and like <laughs> it is crazy this movie is if, if you really want to go in, in like a deep rabbit hole there's a lot of ways to a lot of ways to navigate that yeah um good pick man good pick uh, my number four is it's a movie from 1986 it's manhunter directed, oh. um and written by michael mann you were just talking about this yeah I could have picked Signs of the Lambs. That's a pretty good. I'm sure that might be on somebody's list. But mm-hmm. I picked this because, A, I, I love Michael Mann, number one. It's mm-hmm. got a blue filter on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of dig Brian Cox's Hannibal Lecter. He's much cooler and much like less intense than Anthony Hopkins. Like, Anthony Hopkins is great. But it's it's just a different type of, like, a vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a cop procedural as opposed to like what Sense of the Lambs is or even Red Dragon, which is a straight remake of this. And it's just like, I remember seeing this very young and it just making you feel very, very uncomfortable. And it's, it's got a great cast. It's William Peterson, Joan Allen, Brian Cox, Dennis Farina, Tom Noonan as, as a uh, dollar hide, mm. uh, Stephen Lang, a very young Stephen Lang. Mm. Um, it's one of the movies that I've seen that I saw as a kid and it's still kind of haunts me a little bit. I've never seen that movie. I have not seen it either. Yeah. No. There's horrific scenes and you're seeing just close-ups of like people's eyes, of their fingernails, of like and it's really well done. It's one of Michael Mann's first movies. So neither of you have have seen this one? No. I have not. It's really well done. And it was like the first time they introduced you to like Hannibal Lecter, who's played by Brian Cox. In this so this is the first like cinematic viewing of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Then, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. And then so like Sons of the Lambs is is a direct sequel to this. Right, right. I I had heard of because because yeah. Red Dragon is this is the prequel to Silence of the Lambs. Prequel. Yeah. 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 And in fact, I think I th- if I remember correctly, they even talk a little bit about that detective 
in the in in those movie in like Sands of the Lambs, they kind of like infer about this guy going huh. to handle Lecter for like. So this is the advice. perspective of the the cop or the serial killer. Uh, the cop. The oh, cop. cool. Just has a different vibe than than Sands of the Sands of the Lambs. Um, it's a very different movie. It puts you in a different headspace. But yeah, this is the first incarnation of, of Dr. Hannibal Lecter and in the cinematic version of him. Um, but it's really well done. I, I would recommend you guys watch it if you have Yeah, I'll definitely be checking that out. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm reading up on it. And it's just funny. The, the Wikipedia it says, the film was originally going to be called Red Dragon, like the novel. Michael Mann, who called the new title Inferior, said that producer Dino De Laurentiis made the change after Michael Cimino's film year of the dragon produced by the Laurentiis bombed at the box office and it goes on to say <laughs> at the time bruce lee was knocking out dragon movies and dino in his wisdom decided people would think it was a kung fu movie <laughs> oh my god he's wow yeah yeah because manhunter is definitely yeah less they're generic. gonna say oh yeah they're like oh. <laughs> yeah that's my only thing that really bugged me about this movie was the title <laughs> if if i have to think about it it's really well shot too it's well, it's Michael Dante. Mann, so it's gotta... Yeah. Yeah, it's Dante. Michael Mann before um, digital, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the film Michael Mann, where it's everything's blue. Um, and uh, music is... I don't I don't think it's Tangerine Dream, but it's it's like Tangerine Dreamish. It's dreamy. Um, yeah, yeah. It's very, like, creepy dreamish. And, like, I will spoil this. I don't... If you've seen Red Dragon, you've seen the ending to this. Uh, the ending is like a like a big confrontation between um, Dollar Hyde, played by Tom Noonan, and uh, Will Graham, played by William Peterson. And the whole movie and like the whole like build up to it is is um, is underscored by Inagata Devita, oh. Iron Butterfly, <laughs> and it's really well like it's just really well cut like the music and like the editing. I think it's really well okay. Cut. That's an interesting oh. idea for that. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So okay. if you get a chance, check it out. It's pretty creepy and psychological. Fucking mm, cool. Awesome. Marvin, what do you got? I don't like this director very much, uh, but oh. I like this movie that he made. This is, I think, pretty much universally everyone would agree this is his best movie. It's kind of a corny pick, but I like it anyway, and I still like rewatching it. It is The Sixth Sense. Oh. And I, oh. I like it quite a bit specifically because I believe it was the start of Bruce Willis doing I am the quiet contemplative actor type, which I yeah. quite enjoy in when he does that role correctly. And uh, it's just a really good script. Um, like it's, it's, you know, now he's infamous uh, M night Shyamalan for having a twist and everything. Cause I don't know whether he actually just loves twists or he just thinks needs to live up to some sort of, thing where people are expecting a twist so he has to put one in but this is the first movie where it's like yes the twist is there but the twist transforms the way you think about the movie right and uh it's a uh, it's just a really well written idea um it really I, is i mean it was groundbreaking when that thing came when that movie came out yeah and the weird part is this is a disney production <laughs> wow that's the part that, like, when I got older, I always thought was really odd. Like, why would Disney greenlight this? This makes me this makes me wonder if M Night Shyamalan's career is driven by his ability to convince people, right? Because how did he convince Disney to make this movie? 
I don't know. I mean, it, w- once he made that, he convinced he could convince anyone of anything because he made so much money on it. Right. He, that's the, that's the other thing. His movies just tend to at least make good money. Uh, even so. the horrible ones make they really bring home a lot of money. I think the only one that really didn't was well, I well Avatar bombed. Uh, the, the last airbender, the last airbender. Yeah, yeah, did really bad. And then um, Lady in the Water did really bad. Um, I think. Um, but then they moved him to the Blumhouse, right? And then he's. Well, yeah. He's him in, out. Yeah. He, he did. Um, he did uh, the movie with Will Smith and his son. After Earth. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah, that was actually. Was. That was also a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I remember going to a Comic Con panel for After Earth and it was like. It was not the writer, but it was the world builder. Like they hired this guy just to build the world of After Earth because I think Um, they wanted to turn it into some sort of big universe. I was at the same panel. Oh, you were there with me? I I was probably in the same room. We didn't know each other then. Yeah, we we didn't know each other then. Yeah. Uh, It was Gary Whitta. It was Gary Whitta that was there. It was a writer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Was it? So it's the actual writer. Yeah, yeah, and, and and like he had done, he had done like um, he he had done a, like a, the big movie that that he like became famous with, Gary Whitta, um, was he did the Denzel Washington movie, the post-apocalyptic movie. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, Book of Eli. Eli. Yeah. yeah, and like he was really hot with like post-apocalyptic work. He had done a bunch of stuff, and this was like they were going to build it into like a TV show, and like it was a big thing. Yeah, they, they were, like, yeah. Gonna, Will like, Smith really into. thought he could make like yeah. a whole franchise out of this, and fucking no like yeah yeah well he thought he had set up his son for like 10 years of like sequels basically (laughs) yeah um and it did not do well i mean i like like all failed (laughs) and like Shyamalan (laughs) movies i like the spirit of what he was intending but i think he he falls under the i have too much power and no one will tell me no yes I think that's part of the success of Sixth Sense is that even though he's yes. the sole writer, yeah. he te- he he was, you know, probably under a lot of pressure from all of his producers and stuff to like, apparently there were huge discussions about giving a, okay, let me just explain the movie to people who may have not seen Sixth Sense. So essentially a psychologist gets a new patient and it's a child and the child, as the famous line says, can see dead people. And so the whole movie is about reconciling that. Like, how does he treat someone who thinks they can see dead people? Right. Yeah. And uh, should I just give away that? It's like the biggest well-known yeah, twist in the world. I mean, look, if you haven't seen this movie, <laughs> skip. It's much. It's movie. also much like it's still really good with the twist, with, with knowing the twist. Like the yes. movie's still a yes. great movie. Um, yes. So it turns out he's dead. The psychologist the whole time. That's why he says, I can see dead people, and it cuts straight to him and zooms in on him. And back then, there were apparently huge debates between production and shooting and like, how much do we give that away? Do we really give that away? But is that too much, right? And I feel like M. Night Shyamalan at the height of like Unbreakable or something, or like even like The Happening would have been like, no, I get to, I'm just going to shoot it the way I want to shoot it, right? But yeah. this was a discussion. And I think that's partly why it was really helped. And I think he kind of stopped getting nuanced as he got older as a filmmaker. <laughs> and, they, and ideas started getting broader and broader. Sixth Sense is a cool one because they did a lot of stuff. Like, I think Shyamalan lost a lot of the detail he used to put into his early movies. Mm-hmm. Like, Sixth Sense had yeah. a lot of color, like, 
symbolism. Yeah. Oh like, yeah, the color red, and he like which because he, he won't show red seeing... except for really ex- important parts. Like he intentionally exactly. removed a lot yeah. of red. Yeah, and that highlighted the scene that you knew something without giving it away is like gonna happen when you see the red. Spoiler alert! It's coming now. Um, so he's we talked about it, he's dead. There's people that got ahead of it, and I I was not one of them. No, I, was, I think most people didn't. That's the thing yeah. because there. But I was okay with that. Yeah, and it's like, and it okay, and it's one of those things because it's like there are a ton of details along the way where it it strongly supports the ending, right? Like all the clothes yeah. he's wearing is either one of the layers he was wearing the night he died. Or it's clothing he touched when he walked in, right? Into, yeah, his, into yeah. his house. Yeah. Or the fact that he never talks to his wife the entire movie. Like yeah. there is never a direct conversation. So that, but the thing is, it's like unlike other twists, like um, I'm not going to give away the ending to Unbreakable, but I think the the twist in Unbreakable is like it's shocking, but it doesn't change what's important about the movie to me, right? In Sixth yeah. Sense, when the twist comes, it changes the entire context of what's important. Like, not just like logically what happened, but thematically what's important, you know? it's It becomes, because the entire movie, you think it's supposed to be some sort of, it's supposed to be Malcolm, the, the psychologist, having a redemption arc of treating, finally being able to treat someone correctly. Um, but in reality, it's about Haley Joel Osment's character learning to grapple with it and helping people let go. And Malcolm yeah. is actually not the protagonist. Malcolm yep. is yeah. almost like uh, a, a really strong supporting character and he's let go. It's really interesting. Like, like Or that's, an, an antagonist in certain ways. Yeah. He's like yeah, haunting this definitely. kid. Yeah, and he and he he uh um the in, the the former patient at the beginning of the movie who shoots him like he it's old Donnie it, Wahlberg dude, <laughs> and, and it's his fault. It's his it's it's uh it's it's his fault that uh he didn't believe his his patient, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 just a such a well written movie because that character also saw dead people right yeah yeah, yeah and he yeah, and he yeah, just yeah. and he just he just brushed it off it's just a really good redemption arc you know I, I and I think it's 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 just really well written and like I would love to know what the original script is like because I bet it was crazier but it was reined in by the constraints of the production I bet because it's also a really it's fairly low budget for the amount of stuff that happens in it's $40 million, right? It's not yeah. Yeah. that big a budget for the amount of effects that needed to happen and stuff. So it's the same, same year he wrote the sixth sense and he made it, mm-hmm. uh, was the same year. He also wrote Stuart little. Oh, got to do one. That's a do nice fact. Mortgage. Very similar. Yeah, movies. Yeah. yeah Stuart it's Little's so, uh, also uh, trying to <laughs> convince people that, so I'm I'm friends with strong twist in it too. I'm friends with um John Zilbanicki. Mm-hmm. And one time we were having lunch and I was like, dude, I named sorry, name dropped. Um, <laughs> and, and I I were having lunch and I was like, dude, you've been in a fucking M Night movie, dude. He's like, I have. I'm like, yeah, dude. He's like, no, I haven't. I'm like, yeah, you've been in. That's so funny little, that dude. he doesn't realize. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. He's like, oh my god, you're right, dude. Oh, he wrote or um, directed Stuart Little. He, he, he wrote, just it. wrote it, wrote yeah. it, but still, I, let's just wow. call it a fucking M Night movie. 
All right. Where are we at? Uh, we're at still we're at number three now. My number three is a Wes Craven film, but probably not the Ooh. one you're thinking of. Oh, it's from 1998. It's called Serpent in the Rainbow. Yes. Oh, I one of my that? favorite movies. I haven't seen that. Um, it's based on a true story, which is what really makes me love this movie. But it's about basically this anthropologist. His name's Wade Davis in real life. This is the real life guy. He found a story of somebody that died and then was resurrected like the next day in Haiti. So he flew down to Haiti to track down the story and try to understand what's going on. And it turns out that they use like these toxins from puffer fish, I think is what it was from. And it makes the person appear dead. You know, all their vitals go dark and. Oh, like, so this is like, this is like the actual account of, of what people thought zombies were back in the day. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Because these people that were supposedly dead ended up, you know, waking up and breaking out of their coffins because they didn't bury them deep in Haiti. Mm-hmm. So he went down there and found out. But this movie is based on that whole story. Actually, the the dude Wade Davis, the anthropologist that this is the true story is based on, is one of the writers credited for the movie. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. So it's it's a fucking cool movie. It's a slow burn. So anybody going to watch this, I'm going to warn them that it's yeah. There's a lot of setup and it's really cool actually because you see a lot of like Haitian culture and like. Bill Pullman's the main character, so that's a oh, big okay. plus because Bill Pullman's awesome. Yeah, um, but you just see him kind of like trying to like get facts and stuff, but he starts seeing like these images and like he's slowly fed these toxins that he doesn't understand because they like just part of their like culture where they're dancing and they're like, um, there's like witch doctors that like spray this things out of their mouth, and that's kind of what gives. Bill Pullman's character, like the slight effect of the toxin. Mm. But so he starts hallucinating and it gets the Haitian government gets involved and like <laughs> it's crazy. It ties in like the, I think it was like 84, 80, 85. There was like a Haitian revolution where they like overthrew the a regime that was. Oh, that's an interesting Haiti. setting to have yeah. that happen in. Yeah. Oh. So it's like there's a lot of cool shit. And then like the last. 20 30 minutes of this movie is fucking Wes Craven like crazy like weird yeah. horror spiritual shit that's awesome. Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah. So like it starts so you're so if I gather correctly it starts off kind of almost observational and then turns into a Wes Craven in the last third sort of thing. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's there's definitely Wes Craven influence. It's not like you're watching Nightmare on Elm Street where there's just like every time somebody <laughs> goes to sleep crazy shit happens. <laughs> No, you're just seeing like weird shit and like there's a love interest in the film and mm-hmm. like he ends up seeing her a lot in this like wedding dress, but she's like a she's a zombie basically, you know, like just, mm-hmm. you know, dried out skin and she like spits out snakes and like there's just some weird shit that goes on and Sick. it's a really cool movie and like Serpent in the Rainbow is like a I, I had to look this up, but it's basically I think it's like a Haitian belief that like the serpent represents the earth and the rainbow represents heaven. And since mm-hmm. man has a soul, they can get trapped in between the two. Mm. So that's where the this, title of film comes from. This um, movie definitely scared the shit out of me as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Me too. And that's uh, why it kind of stuck with me forever. Where yeah. I'm just like, I, that movie, every time I watch it, I get that feeling where it just like brings me back to being a kid and being scared shitless watching this thing. My dad, he would rent me anything that like in the weekends or like you pick whatever the fuck you want to watch, watch together. <laughs> 
we were on a huge like Wes Craven kick. We had seen like Nightmare on Elm Street. We had seen The Hills Have Eyes. And then this movie was the one, the next recommendation. And it freaked the shit out of me, dude. Um, <laughs> I never wanted to go to a vacation like anywhere. I was like, I don't want to go Unlike those two, like Nightmare and Hills Have Eyes, like you can suspend belief because it's like, this is something that's like yeah. surreal. Where yeah. Serpent in the Rainbow, it's like, it feels real. You're just like, shit, this yeah. is like, I'm not in this dream world. This is normal, <laughs> real life. All right. Uh, number three to me. Spoiler alert, it has Keanu Reeves in it. It's from 1997, and it is The Devil's Advocate. Mm. That movie's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, directed by Taylor Hackford. Uh, he went on to direct Jamie Foxx in Ray, so Oscar-nominated director. But he directs Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves and Charlize uh, Theron right? is yeah. in this. Jeffrey Jones, uh, Coach. Craig T. Nelson is in it. Chris Bauer, who's in everything. Like the rough synopsis is the INDP synopsis, they call it. This like small town like lawyer gets a job offer from like this huge law firm. His boss, played by Al Pacino, gives him like this opportunity to come because he's like a winning fucking defense lawyer. They move over they move to, to, to New York and they're from like a small town. I want to say like they're like in Alabama. And like so basically he goes to, to work for this law firm and his boss is Al Pacino and you these crazy, creepy things start happening and it, it slowly revealed that not only is Al Pacino the devil, but he is Keanu Reeves' character's dad. And Keanu Reeves is the Antichrist. Dang. Basically what they're hinting at is that lawyers are the devil. <laughs> yeah. They're all Basically. they're all just directly involved yeah. with Satan. <laughs> is it even hinted or is it just like no, it feels yeah, they, pretty direct? All yeah, lawyers yeah, are Satan. It. They, they, it's pretty yeah. direct, you're right. And um and he's the Antichrist. Oh, Connie Nielsen's in this. I forgot about oh, that. Oh, that's right. Connie yeah, Nielsen. Because uh spoiler alert, she plays his sister in this in this movie. Uh, it's like <laughs> half sister. I think it's really well directed. It's over the top on Pacino's part, but really, I mean, if you're playing the devil, you gotta go over the top. Um, that's probably the only thing that I didn't like about the movie is that he was so like ham-fisted in his like performance oh okay because that's kind of what I'm looking forward to in Al Pacino playing the devil (laughs) then you'll it's up your alley man (laughs) this movie did well when it came out and I think Keanu Reeves was not the problem like he's great Charlize Theron is great like her part is really great because she keeps seeing these things and these like visions and like that's the psychological like horror part of it because like she's basically losing it she literally loses it i feel like if the movie had a different lead actor uh, al pacino's great and it is fun to watch him go over the top but if had it been another actor fucking like paul newman somebody (laughs) who you don't expect to be like the devil i think it could have been really because they could have brought like a crazy intensity that's like internalized and not externalized like yeah Pacino did (laughs) it would have been a way more powerful movie and I think people would still be talking about it but it seems like it just a movie that kind of went away who directed this Taylor Hackford oh okay okay he did Ray he did um Dolores Claiborne oh okay depends on like my mood but sometimes I'm like fuck Pacino's fucking hitting out of the park with his over the top (laughs) acting um because he like when at especially at the end when he like reveals himself to be the devil and he's like yeah. the, the hair's crazy and he's just fucking yelling. That's the thing. Pen. I that's the that's the clip I've seen <laughs> with this shirt like open like all the way. He's just yep, yelling. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really great speech 
at the end about God being, he's like, God's an absentee landlord. And that, I don't know why that quote has always stuck into my head and I can't get it over, can't get it out. <laughs> uh, God is an absentee landlord. <laughs> All right, Marvin, what do you got? Uh, this is kind of a, an easy pick. You'll know it as soon as I say the director. Jordan Peele's breakout movie, Get Out. Two main reasons I really like this movie. Uh, like many other choices I made, I like it because the script is really good. Um, it's like a script you can tell he was working on for a really long time and made sure he got all the details right. Um, so that that makes it work really well. The other thing is that I like that it's about a subject matter where we're finally saying out loud what we're all thinking. And, uh, it, (laughs) it's, it's very, it's like, I'm glad it's finally a horror movie from that perspective where I'm like, yes, that is scary when you realize you're the only non-white person in a thing, (laughs) it does feel very awkward. Uh, so that, that's, that's what I enjoyed about the movie a lot that, um, it, it felt, uh, not necessarily relate. I'm not black, so it's not like relatable. But like, I get it. <laughs> uh, you're a minority. You can relate to it. To you're a minority. Yeah, I get it to an extent. Yeah, yeah I, I can't yeah. claim that. You know. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally. But you know, I. But I, I generally understand what's what's the crux yeah. of what makes him uncomfortable just to be there. I yeah. mean, we've all been to whether it's a party or something where we're not the right person. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. I'm not saying yeah. I understand yeah. the exact perspective, but you can relate enough to be like, oh, I know what it's like to be the only person at a thing of, yeah. of people that aren't like me. Yeah. Right. Um, and when I that mean, slowly right, turns... People deal with that their whole life, but... Yeah, and when then that slowly turns into feeling dangerous, that's when you yep. get the drama out of this, and it's... It's a, it's, it's a brilliant movie. Yeah. Before we get to the synopsis, um, was this one of the movies, Rick, that you were talking about that breaks its own rules? No, no, no. Okay, I okay. love it. The, this is this movie is uh, this movie is definitely in my top ten of this list uh, okay. easily. It's it's absolutely on my page. I just I didn't put it in my top five because I was sure one of you guys would have it. So <laughs> it very strictly follows the it's, rules. It's very, <laughs> yeah. it adheres to the rules very well. I read the script yeah. at least three times. The script is like very tight. It's a very for this yeah, being he, his first like big thing. That script is perfect. Like it's you can incredible. tell, he was like really, really working on it for a while to Absolutely. make sure everything was really, really yeah. good. Yeah. When somebody works on like a, a deep piece of work, you see, like you don't see it on screen cause it's really well, it's pretty flawless. But you, when you read it, you're like, Oh fuck. You see, like you literally see the layers, you know, like yeah. you see the layers of work. And then when it's well done, you don't see them on film. You just feel them. But this is really well done. It's really shot. Well, the music is, fucking amazing i'm glad the movie came out well because from what i understand it had a really troubled not troubled but like it was like a lot of back and forthy type of production and post-production where they were like Mm -hmm. things aren't working for some reason there are reshoots and they're trying to figure things out and no one was quite sure why things weren't working and uh, i think um i'm glad it ended up uh working out that way like even the ending they were originally going to have a completely different ending Mm. And if they yeah. did, uh, I don't want to spoil the because this is new enough that I want to spoil it because um, I'm sure there are some people who still haven't seen it. But like, yeah, uh, basically, the ending involves a cop. And in the original ending, it literally just cuts away. Oh, once the cop arrives, there's a moment of like, oh, fuck. 
Yeah. And then, and then that like, was the movie it's really playing with you. Yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah, that yeah, was yeah, the original yeah. ending apparently yeah. where you just saw those lights and it was over. Yeah. Yep. That yep. was a bad choice. That was a good choice to change that. Yeah. Yep. Cause then you would just be like, Jesus. And then, yep. <laughs> and yep. then, then you would leave feeling like horribly devastated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause now it's not like it's a happy ending by any means the the current ending. It's just, not a not horrible not like I question like <laughs> like I just feel horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, throughout. You know what? You um, know what this movie did really well is there's comedy in this movie, but mm-hmm. it's it's more like a steam vent. You know what I mean? They build yeah. up tension so much mm-hmm. that they give you those little moments of of a laugh to be like, okay, yeah, we're on with this it, film. Yes. And it's great because it lulls a lot of the funny parts lulls you into thinking it'll be okay. Like exactly, maybe it'll be fine. You know, I I don't want to. It can't be that, so it'll be fine. Ah, uh, we're just right. you know, it gives which, humanity which, to the bad characters. Yeah, and it's just amazing because like it's I talk about it that way with with video games a lot, where the way you play a video game often doesn't like correctly mesh with the actual story of the video game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the Uncharted series, like the fact that he's supposed to be this charming guy who's a swashbuckler, but he's a mass murderer. Like those two yeah. things don't really mesh. So the, and, the, and there's a lot of movies where like your the audience is supposed to feel a certain way, but it's not necessarily the mind space of the story or the main character. In this movie, the way it disarms you with that comedy is exactly the way the main character's feeling. And it's him, con- yeah. the yeah. way you constantly go it'll be fine this is this is this is just like a red herring he's going ah it'll be fine i'm overthinking it and it, it it's it's so good it's such a well thought out idea and it's got such a good like rounded out cast that mm-hmm. like fuck uh it's um bradley whitford allison williams allison williams yes Daniel and Kalua, um, and katherine keener that's what i was thinking Catherine Catherine Keener. Keener. Yeah, 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 yeah she's really good also, Stephen Root in the movie as the as yes. a, as a dad. Oh, he's, yeah. oh, he's so good. See, I really love Stephen Root as an actor. He's awesome. Yeah. Just to see him. That's another thing. The cast, the casting Stephen Root, you immediately get disarmed. It's like, it's Stephen Root. You know? Yeah. He's, just like, he's just hanging out with the, the dad guy. You know? I mean, <laughs> horrible things. Have you watched Barry? Uh, I've not. Yes, no, yes, I, a, a, yes. a mutual friend of ours, JR, just keep t- keeps telling me about to, to watch it, but I haven't got yeah, to see dude, it. Yeah, dude. It's Stephen Root's one of the. He's not like one of the main main characters, but he's one of the main supporting characters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's he's really funny in the show, but he's a very serious character. <laughs> and it's just yeah. like the character in Get Out, where it's just like I'm laughing at him, but he is horrible. Like, he's a horrible <laughs> person. Yeah, because you're so used to, especially like if you if you're used to seeing him in like comedies, like the the um, not Judd Apatow, the uh, Mike Judge. Like, like Judge Office Space, like yeah, Office Space, and yeah. Stuff like that. If you if you're used to seeing him there, and then you see him in like something serious, he's just such a good actor that like he's great. He's very disarming, and uh, yeah, I I like him. I like him making cameos or like having small bits parts in um the uh, Coen Brothers movies. Lakeith Stanfield is in it, mm-hmm, who, mm-hmm. who I really fucking dig. All right, we're at number two. So my number two is a, another writer from the Stuart Little universe. Um, <laughs> oh. Surprisingly, uh, Bryce Joel Rubin. It's Jacob's Ladder from 1990. He also wrote Ghost, Deep Impact, a bunch of other stuff. But I don't know if uh, 
you guys know Jacob's Ladder. This is another one yes. of my favorites. It's when you talk about psychological horror, this is the first movie I always think about because the entire movie, you have no idea what's going on. It spans across like different maybe times, places, but you're just living plot? it through. So the plot is um, Tim Robbins, the main character. And when the movie oh, it's opens, Tim Robbins. You see him. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. He's in an army platoon and they get attacked and you see him get stabbed in the opening scene, like by a bayonet. You don't see who stabs him or anything. Uh, and then the next scenes, he's like on a New York subway. He's obviously out of the army now and he's recovered, you know, from his injuries. And he's got a girlfriend who is played by uh, Elizabeth Pena. This is a very complicated plot, basically, but he starts seeing things like people having horns and he goes to see a psychiatrist and the nurse there is like that. He's he's that person's never worked here. And he's like, I was here yesterday. So there's like all these things that you're watching this character go through that you're trying to figure out this mystery along with him. But then he just starts. It kind of just devolves and he gets uh, contacted by a chemist that worked for the military and tries to explain things to him. It's just a very, very psychedelic type of movie where you're watching all these images. It's the first movie I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, it might have been used before, but you know that scene in Fight Club where like Tyler Durden's face shakes like crazy when he's mm-hmm. talking? That's like very that's that's used a lot in this movie. Okay. Um, okay. Where he like sees people across the room and like he kind of sees a face, but it's a blank face. It's more like a blank slate, like a nondescript, no features, and then it starts shaking like crazy. Okay. In that kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. This is a movie where it's very, uh, it's another one of those movies where you're like, fuck dude, am I fucking high? Like <laughs> yeah. this movie makes you feel like, like the you've done time. some like mushrooms. Yeah. That's cool. And, and I thought but, about this, this was remade in 2019. I, I haven't seen the remake, but. Oh. Oh yeah. Apparently yeah, it was remade. Right. Oh, I found it. Premiered on the Dish Network. Oh wow. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. It was just dumped. Man, this doesn't look good. I'm, I'm looking at <laughs> the poster doesn't look- inspire much confidence, right? Yeah. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a very generic poster. Yeah, and um, I have something I don't want to watch because I this this original movie is such a good movie. That yes, yes. Um, it's it's uh, directed by Adrian Lin, who has like a very fucking interesting body of work. Like he did Flash Fatal Dance, Attraction. Fatal, Fatal Attraction. He did Unfaithful. Have either of you seen it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I watched. It I remember seeing it fucking... when I shouldn't have when I was younger. I <laughs> <laughs> That's not my genre of movie, but it's just so well done that like I think it's it's Diane Lane. I think she's so fucking good in it that it's just like you can't forget that fucking movie. Isn't um, it one of the ball Diane Lane and one of the Baldwin? No, 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 no. It's Gere. Richard Gere. It's yeah, Richard yeah, Gere. yeah, right. Yeah, Richard yeah. Gere. And one of the kids from Malcolm in the Middle plays their son Dewey. Dewey plays their son. <laughs> um, well, but the yeah, Richard Gere very- choice as the as the the guy is a weird choice because he's he's like usually this is nice he's pretty woman guy he's very nice and like yeah yeah be- and I think that's why he, if he fits so well in, in unfaithful because yeah because he's like he's got to do this horrible act and ah man um, it's like it's like so Jimmy well Stewart and yeah. like uh, in um vertigo right you chose jimmy stewart because it yes. feels uncomfortable having him there you know? yes yeah. yes yeah um jacob's ladder definitely fucking haunted me as a child um, God, i really want to watch this now <laughs> and also elizabeth pena is one of the most like underrated actresses like she's of her amazing time. in this movie 
Yes, yes, yes. She, um, you would know her, uh, Marvin, as the voice of um, Syndrome's assistant in The Incredibles. Oh, she's okay. Got deep raspy voice. Uh, she's a Hispanic actress that um, she's been in a bunch of shit, and uh, she, I want to say she passed away like five years ago. She had like oh, cancer or something, but no. she was really everything. Every movie that every role that you see her play play like every supporting role she's just fucking kick ass she's really fucking good cool. uh, this movie also stars there's jason alexander's in is in the jacob slatter yeah that's um, right he's a lawyer ving rames uh eric lasale is in it and um that guy from uh identity uh pruitt taylor vince is also it. uh macaulay calkins it's one of his first films oh really <laughs> yeah, he plays the dead son Oh yeah! Oh, and they okay. do some flashbacks. He's in it. That's right. That's right. Is he? Damn, dude. So, so one of his early. So he's even younger than yeah than Home Alone. Okay. It's probably it's 1990, so it's right around the same time Home Alone came out. Yeah, okay. yeah. That's a good. That's a good good double feature. Jacob's Ladder than Home Alone. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they, they complement each other. Pretty well. <laughs> it's, it's a good Christmas um like double feature. All right. Um, my number two, 1995's uh seven. Oh, oh dude yes. that's yeah, on my list seven. that movie i i wanted to have a fincher film but he didn't make the cut but seven is incredible he is another guy who is notoriously known for like hundreds of takes usually when like they're shooting a movie um and they're cutting cutting away to like a hand like mm-hmm. someone placing down a paper or on the phone Usually it's a stand-in so the actor the lead actor doesn't have to be there oh yeah he does not stuff. go for that yeah nope Nope. There's this. There's this like be there's like behind the scenes footage of like Zodiac, which is another mm-hmm. psychological thriller. That's great. That where he it's Jake Gyllenhaal like just putting down books in his car, mm-hmm. and you see the slate, and the slate says take thirty two, <laughs> and it's just him placing wow. books on the car seat next to him. <laughs> I want he has uh, he has this constant indie mindset. Like uh, I have a I have a friend who did DIT for him, and like he he was like he just does not like having a big crew. Like he likes to strip things down. He'll literally go through the lighting kit list and go, no, this is too much lighting. Cause I don't want to be bogged down. And it, so like, I, I think he come, he approached from that mindset where like, like a lot of indie filmmakers approach, uh, approach their directing as if like, they're going to start with like, cause, cause a lot of indie people start with like theater actors or something, right? Because they're easily yeah. accessible. And a lot of theater actors and indie filmmakers who work with theater actors tend to understand that doing lots of takes is fine, like because that's just yeah, what they yeah. do as well. So I yeah. think that's a part of the approach. He, I don't think it's like a Kubrick where he's trying to break him down. I think it's more no, of no, like no. Yeah. it's more of yeah. like him being like, I want it perfect, and the best way for us to do it perfectly is to do it like in a in a swift and efficient way. That's why his his crew is so yeah. light. Like it's why like his yeah. lighting tends to be so minimal in general. The movie's written by Andrew Kevin Walker. He's just a good writer overall. He he's a very um dark writer. He writes a lot of even if they're not horror, it's it's a very dark material uh that he tends to like live in. Mm-hmm. The space he, he lives did in. like eight millimeter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did uh seven, eight millimeter, Sleepy Hollow. Um Yeah, that's uh, Wolfman. Sleepy um, Hollow's not yeah panic room i think he did like end credit to work on panic room he oh, does panic. a lot of like punch ups. another on, like, fincher film yeah he has done a lot of like punch ups on stuff that he didn't write for fincher but he just he's like fincher's like punch-up guy on the internet you could find andrew kevin walker's 
Batman Year One script. It's really oh. good. Yeah, yeah. I still have to read that. Yeah. Um, it's really, really, really good. Oh, this is the so this is that whole thread that eventually led to yeah. Batman Begins. Yeah, cause, okay, because I know um, the Wachowskis. I've read the Wachowskis one, and it's not as good as Andrew Kevin Walker's mm-hmm. Batman script. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was like it was like maybe like a five six year period where everyone was working on Batman. But seven back to seven. It's about two <laughs> detectives. Sorry, we really got off the rails. Batman off. seven's um, about Batman. <laughs> uh, two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, uh, who have to hunt down the serial killer who uses like the seven deadly sins as his. The murders are are inspired by the seven sins. Yeah, stars Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Uh, who's amazing spoiler alert kevin spacey's in it but he's actually that's the thing like the parts where you're not supposed to realize it's him it's actually him he's so good in this even though he's a creep in real life yeah um yeah arlie yeah. uh ermy is in it um from uh from uh <laughs> full metal jacket oh yeah, 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 um, yeah. oh yeah but really this is this is the the movie that gave us the famous line uh what's in the box What's in the box? Gwyneth Paltrow's in it too. Gwyneth Paltrow's in it. It's one of those movies where you see Brad Pitt and you're like, man, he's, you could feel how tired he is of like this investigation and like his marriage and all this stuff. It's really fucking well done. There's a lot of thought that go into Fincher's movies. I really enjoy. There's really not a movie that he's made that I've been like, eh, I'm not a fan of. Zodiac. I like Zodiac. I actually love Zodiac. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. You don't like Zodiac? I don't hate it. It's fun. It's like, uh, I came out feeling indifferent after I saw that. That's the only movie. I, I really like Fincher. He's one of my favorite uh, directors. I think Zodiac has the the most uncomfortable stabbing scene I've ever seen in a movie. Yes, that scene is amazing. My yes. one of my one of my friends, he told me I got the story wrong before when I said it before. So I'm gonna try to get it correct. But one of my friends, I believe, knows a teacher, and that that teacher is that guy in that scene with the lady. Oh wow. At the lake. Yeah. And he would tell his students about that story. <laughs> yeah. That's scary. <laughs> so like the story I've I saw on the behind the scenes like feature in the movie is and this just goes to show you how like deep Dave Fincher goes. They had the cop who uh, one of the detectives take them around to all the murder scenes that he investigated and they went to that scene uh, where the stabbing happened and they went to the actual location oh yeah yeah and they were looking at it and uh the detective goes so yeah this is where it happened and you know this is where she was this is where he was and dave finger's like nah it wasn't here and he's like what do you mean i was i investigated the case he's like no it was over there by that tree and then the detective looks at his notes and then looks at the thing he's like yeah you're right let's move over there It, like, like it makes you wonder, like, how, did you investigate it then? I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> <laughs> this dude from Hollywood is like, no, nah, we're, we're near the wrong fucking tree, dude. <laughs> but yeah, this movie's like so well done. The cinematography is fucking awesome. The like, editing is off yeah. the wall. It's yeah, incredible. so many cuts per minute. It's crazy. Yeah. This movie shot by like one of my favorite cinematographers, Darius Kanji. They have this very classical like lighting, but can be really fucking dark. Like he did this. Mm-hmm. He did another one that like I'm kind of obsessed with. He he did a lot of work with um, James Gray. He did Lost City of Z. Uh, he just recently did Uncut Gems. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. We did, um, did, he, did some stuff for Woody Allen. And did they the, bleach the film for seven? Like, because it looks bleached, like yeah. a lot of the shit. Yeah, they did. They did some weird, like, chemical process to it to make it feel. I And, and this is stuff that's in the supplemental features on the DVD, actually, where they go into, like, a deep dive on, like, the film and how they did it. 
But yeah, that is my number two. Um, Great choice. Number number two is seven. <laughs> uh, Marvin, what do you what do you got? Uh, number two for me is an extreme classic. It's hard to get more classic than this movie, and it's because I'm a general, just a really big fan of this director. It is Psycho. God, I hope everyone knows Psycho. Um, <laughs> I think so, dude. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, they they probably seen the the Vince Vaughn version. <laughs> <laughs> And they've probably seen the, the millions of parodies of Psycho. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not going to get into that. The thing about Psycho that always amazes me is that the more I learn about it, because like you, wa- you watch it, it's a great movie, right? Like it's mm-hmm. classically well-constructed Hitchcock. But even without reading about it, you realize in the general scheme, like it just invented kind of like the jump scare almost in like in modern cinema with the, with the shower. And it's interesting because it's like Hitchcock wasn't known for that. In fact, that's almost anti-Hitchcock to have a jump scare like that with yeah. the shower scene because mm-hmm. he's known for, because he has this very famous AFI lecture he's giving where he's like, the idea he wants to do is show the audience all the information, mm-hmm. but have the characters know only a little bit of the information. Like his, yeah. the classic example he always gives is people are playing cards, but there's a bomb under the table. The audience can see it, but the players playing cards can't. But that's not what Psycho is at all. Psycho is a slow, steady character buildup that hard cuts to a brutal murder. And it's not very Hitchcockian at all from there. The crazy part also is that the parts of the movie that work are stuff that shouldn't have really worked for him. Like he he worked with the television crew that he wasn't well-versed with, right? So like, yeah. it's amazing that worked out well. He also originally didn't want that score. One of the most mm-hmm. iconic scores of all time. He said, I want it to be completely quiet. And then uh, the um, Bernard Herman, the, the composer, was like, I'm just going to make something. He just made it. And then, and then uh, Hitchcock was like, all right, that's, that's really good. And then <laughs> they kept it in. They just did it in the scene. And it's very well-made classical horror movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm obsessed with this this like type of like storytelling where you 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 start the movie off and you think it's one movie, mm-hmm. and then like whether it's half the midpoint or like after the first act, the movie completely shifts. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm obsessed with that. But when it's really when it's done well, fuck, dude. It, it, you have I'm, to earn it. You have yeah, to earn it with like. Really um, it. You have to really make the where, audience trust you. Yeah, yeah. You you're you're following, you know, um Janet Lee, uh Marion Crane's character. And mm-hmm. first of all, that opening shot that looks like a one taker all the way into yeah. the hotel room is amazing. Uh-huh. And especially for for its oh, time. Yeah. It's like not only like it's it pans through the city and then it like pushes into the hotel room and it's an amazing fucking shot. And then like I wanna say it's not even halfway through the movie, like a third of way way through the movie, you totally shift and now you're in Norman Bates like movie it's two mm-hmm, movies in mm-hmm. one and yeah it's really fucking well done really well done i mean like the, the the moment that happens is is my favorite scene in the movie when she's just in in a room making a sandwich and then he comes in and talks to her like i love that scene right before this movie he made north by northwest i know it's yeah. a very <laughs> different type of movie yeah widescreen massive use of color tons of fantastical special effects and settings and then his next movie is this weird one setting black and white 
if I remember correctly, four by three movie, I think it's almost like he decided to strip himself down, like take it almost back to basics because North by Northwest was him like blowing his load. He basically did everything he wanted to do in one movie and was like, I did it. I'm going to go back to basics now and kind of try something different. So now does not now, now, not only does he try, uh, you know, paring down the technology of it, but still make some of the most technically amazing shots ever. Um, yeah. he's, he also tells a different type of story, which is almost like, it's almost like a, like a television script in terms of the way it's just like a, like a, a lark being told. And then a thing happens, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's just, it's just be, that, that scene. I, I always really love it because like, it's such a tension filled scene just by at one point switching to a low angle on Norman. And then she starts making her sandwich in a different way. And then you just go, <laughs> it's just two little things, but it's so subtle. And he, at that point was so great at just constructing dialogue scenes that he, he knows he can just do that and get away with it and have it be yeah. a tension builder. It's just fantastic. It's the, the thing about the classics is like, like you watch this and everything's practical. So like, there's nothing of it that you're like, yeah, it looks stupid. Like it just, it works. It works. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I think what's interesting is that, you know, it, it became such a cultural milestone that mm-hmm. a movie that should not have like a franchise built around it ended yes. up getting a franchise built around yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at Jaws, dude. Like yeah. Jaws well, and this should never have franchises. Well, well, that's a blockbuster to me. Like yeah, to me, that's but, like, cause it's a summer blockbuster. They'll go like, I guess. Like, so, I mean, I mean, Psycho obviously did very well, yeah, um, yeah. but but I Jaws, it's, it's almost like you can you can turn it comical. Right. And you're like, yeah, fine. Well, but Psycho never really turned comical as a franchise. It, just, no, it kept no. staying serious. Yeah. And like and even one of the I, th- I think the, the, the third sequel or one of the sequels is directed by Anthony Perkins, who plays Norman Bates. Yes, so it's like I say wow. three. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's three. Yeah. yeah so I that's it's, it's just as a franchise, it's interesting. It's not like you would you would assume a franchise based on such a premise where it really shouldn't become franchised would be awful. But I haven't seen these movies, but I I hear from people that like they're actually fine. Like I haven't seen not- them since I was a kid. So I I I don't know. But I I remember being like, uh why are these in color? <laughs> that was my biggest complaint I'm like uh, they don't look like the other ones they don't feel like the other ones i'm yeah, down yeah. on these all right we are finally down to our last round our number one number one rick my number one is one of my top five movies of all time and it's unconventional it's a weird movie um <clears throat> and i'll say it right off the bat it's not for everyone but it's one of my favorite directors uh dario argento Oh, 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 okay. I'm very interested. <laughs> <laughs> it's the 1977 film Suspiria. Yeah. This movie, there's so many things about it that draw me to this movie. One, the score, this band Goblin does the whole score, and it's, yes. it almost doesn't fit the movie, but it fits it so well in my own personality that it just brings out something in the movie that makes it so awesome to me. Uh, and it's just like, it's such a basic plot and it's almost just so straightforward, but it's about a, a young American woman that travels over to Europe uh, to go to a 
basically a boarding school for ballet students. And immediately when she gets there, things aren't right. Like her first day there, like somebody runs out screaming and whispers something back, like something about a secret blue flower. And then that person ends up missing. But weird horror things start happening, like maggots start falling from the ceiling and um, just a lot of hallucinating. Like she just faints and then wakes up and they're feeding <laughs> her like the special diet. And it's just a very like you're in the mind and perspective of this young woman in this ballet, like in a new world for her, making friends that she's not sure of. Well, mm-hmm. weird shit's just constantly happening around her. And just the. It's almost overused, but I love it. Just the sound cues they constantly use and these like loud hits and this loud score that's going on. It's it's really incredible. But yeah, Suspiria is one of my favorite. And they remade Suspiria a year or two ago, I think. Yeah, uh, Amazon yeah. Studios had a... I didn't mind it. I, I was expecting to hate it because this is one of my favorite movies. And I was like, why would they remake this movie? Uh, it was way too long, the remake. The original one's only like, it's a pretty short movie, I think. It's an hour and a half or something. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's pretty short. Um, The remake was like, I think it was two and a half, three hours. I don't even remember. I think it's three hours. It's ridiculous. And they break it up in like six acts, but like while you're watching it, it's like act one of one, or one of six, act two of six, and you're like, I remember getting to act four of six, and I was like, fuck, there's still two more acts after this. (laughs) Jesus. But yeah, this, this is one of my favorite movies of all time just and none of it's none of the individual components of this movie i would say are amazing but together they make this like perfect recipe that in in many ways it's kind of reminiscent of uh dario argento's other movies in that like he tends to use his vehicles his movies as vehicles for ideas yeah like Mm -hmm. the story almost isn't as big an issue as he he now has set pieces to carry out the ideas he wants to do but for whatever reason in Suspiria, it all flows together as one thing. It doesn't necessarily do that for all of his other movies, but for Suspiria, it just does. Exactly. This, yeah. I mean, this ends up feeling more artistic than like opera or demons or something like that, you know, <laughs> where those are like, you know, horrors more up front or whatever's more up front where this has like some beauty to it in, mm-hmm. in a in a in a way, I guess. I think the music is fucking I, I'm I'm very obsessed with this score in Goblin. Goblin, and I know that's it's yeah. incredible. You lay Goblin on any movie that sucks, and it makes it better. It instantly makes it a much better movie. And it's a weird. It's not like they're not a traditional scoring band no. or sound. Nope. You know what I mean? It's loud, yeah. twangy noises, and like, and this is a ballet horror, so it's like, you know what I mean? You wouldn't expect <laughs> yeah, those yeah. kind of cues coming yeah. in, but yeah, weird like experimental said, stuff. Yeah, yeah, these odd mixture of things that shouldn't fit together just somehow melded into like in my mind, one of the perfect movies. So when they announced remake, I was like, oh fuck, who are they going to get to score this fucking thing? <laughs> and to my surprise, Tom they kind of, they picked the right person. So I'm agreeing with you in a sense, the score he did was good. <laughs> yeah. The music was awful. I don't, so when he did score and just, you know, it was just instrumental. I was like, yeah, this yeah. is, this is fucking incredible. Yeah. And then he started, there's like parts where there's music where he's singing. Like, I agree with you 100%. And I was yeah. like, oh, what? is there? Is, yeah. Oh, you know, I haven't seen. Yeah. 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 It pulls you so far out of the movie. You're just like, what the yeah. hell is going on? I haven't on? seen that. I haven't it, seen the new Suspiria. So that, that reminds me of like when, 
like at the end of like Gran Torino where fucking uh, <laughs> Gran Torino uh, Clint yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it's just like, a close like, up on like, his face as he's yeah. literally driving a Gran Torino and you're like you're like well this movie's not bad and then he's started <laughs> Gran Torino <laughs> you know, like, God damn it, and you're like oh no there it goes. yeah there goes fucking uh, Clint again singing <laughs> gravelly as voice yeah when he starts singing definitely I, I agree 100% what would have been a perfect match for this movie would, would have been Johnny Greenwood. He could have brought some really mm. crazy, interesting things. Everything Johnny Greenwood's done I, for movies, I fucking enjoyed. Like, There Will Be Blood is one of my favorite scores. Mm. In all honesty, I, th- I think the, the score would have been amazing if if he didn't do any mu- like actual music. It's really the music that just kind of, or the soundtrack or whatever it is, that when whenever he was singing on that, it was pulled me right out of the movie. Maybe because it was so long that he was like, I'm just going to throw in some songs here. and then Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to just, whatever I didn't put in my last album, I'm going to throw in here because I, I, it's so long. I can't make up all this music. <laughs> I can't make six hours of score. Yeah. <laughs> it was insane. I mean, that's the thing is like, I was enjoying the new movie and then I was just like, I can't, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be this. I think there, there's one actress that could have been way better than Dakota Johnson. Like, if I were to replace Dakota Johnson with um, this actress, Riley Kyog, she was in like um, Logan Lucky. She played the sister. Oh, I, you she's, yeah, you brought her up before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's really good. I, I think she's an amazing actress. If she would have played the lead, I would have. It would have been the perfect movie. But she Dakota Johnson takes me out of things for some reason. Yeah, I don't know why it is. I had no problem with Chloe Grace Moretz or Tilla Swinton. I think Chloe Grace Moretz is, is is actually kind of. Coming into her own, I think she's great. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it because th- she's Fifty Shades? Is that why? No, I don't know. I, I, maybe because all I can think about is like Don Johnson. For some, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> like even Don Johnson's like had a like a, a resurrect resurrection of his career, like with like Django and Chain and stuff like that. But like, mm. no, I don't. I don't know. I just don't. I don't. I, don't, I, I There's something about her that I can't. She can't sell me a character. Um, she pulled yeah. off Alan though, and that was pretty awesome. That is badass. <laughs> that I could, but as a human being and as a person, not as a character. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very fair. Is it like a, is it like an Aubrey Plaza where you can't see her as anything but like the person, like Aubrey? Like you see Aubrey Plaza in a movie, even you hear Aubrey Plaza, like in yes. fucking uh, Legend of Korra, the second season, you hear her voice yeah. and you just go, "Oh, Aubrey Plaza's in this show." <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah like 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 she is a character in parks and rec like that's, yeah like she will always be that character and yeah like, i think because it's her it's deep down it's yeah her. it was literally written around her yeah. so yeah. it sort of is her yeah I, it like, feels the same way like it's she, just, I mean, like, she yeah. got hired for acting roles because she was helping in casting and she kept making snarky comments and they said you should just do it <laughs> Because wow. yeah. her own snarky comments were exactly what they were looking for. Um, maybe that's it. I don't know. But uh, the original is fucking rad. I I don't dig a lot of Dario's movies. Some of it because he's because he's very uneven. That's a thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Did he do like a ton of shorts? I mean, he must have, right? Because he did. He, I think he did. Because yeah. he I'm feels sure like he the did. type of guy who would like yeah. be like shorts king. Like yeah, yeah. He was supposed yeah, was... to do like the new Sandman movie. I don't know. Really. Yeah, I don't know if that fell apart. Dario Argento? Yeah. Uh, Last I knew, I haven't 
Okay. I believe so. But that was I, announced I like why. a year or two ago, the Sandman yeah, okay. movie. So. Okay. Dario's got to be really fucking old, though. <laughs> but I mean, he yeah, can't he, be as old as Clint Eastwood. And he, he doesn't sing in his movies. He's 79. Suspiria. He's still alive. Yeah. He's 79. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, very good. Uh, Suspiria is a weird movie because it does feel like it didn't know how to end. Yeah. Be, like, yeah. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like, and everything. Yeah. Just to yeah. give away the ending, it's just like, um, did it you, all have you guys, crumbles. Yeah, yeah. You guys have seen it, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not like a, it's not some spoiler, anyways. But like, no, it's not. Places like run by witches or whatever, and she's yeah, yeah. the witch. But then, like, they didn't know where to go after that, so she just walks out of the ballet studio or the boarding school, and it's just on fire. Yeah, and like that's it. He's <laughs> like, yeah. ah, fuck these witches. And everything's crumbling, and then yeah. like nobody out. set the fire. It's just like, and she must have set it on fire because of witches. Know. That's why exactly. it's symbolism. They're witches. Fucking witches. <laughs> Everyone else was still in the school, so <laughs> no, like, it's fine. They yeah. do this every couple months. It just kind of ends. That's like yeah. one of the big complaints. Is like, well, there's not much. You know, it comes to a climax, and they're like, and we just need to get out of this. So. He's not interested in the ending. He's no. not. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great number one. My number one is written and directed by Jeff Nichols, and it is Take Shelter. I have not seen that one. I have not seen it either. I like Jeff Nichols a lot. I I still haven't seen a movie that I hadn't I have hated. Um, you guys might have seen Midnight Special. Mm, okay okay he did midnight special but that notoriously had like problems because he was working with a bigger studio and he usually does well with indie movies like because he has total control but i i think so like i ended up seeing like friends and family cut of it and then what got released was a little bit different and like the intention kind of changed of the movie Mm. but its original like incarnation was fucking beautiful and he did uh he did mud uh, and he did uh, his first movie was this really cool like southern indie movie called uh, Shotgun Stories, and oh. most of these movies star um, Michael Shannon. Uh, he's oh. he works really well with him. I love some Michael Shannon. He's great. Shotgun Stories is amazing, dude. It's about I have to talk about that now because it's, <laughs> uh, it's about these these this this um two feuding families. Uh, this guy, uh, he had a family and one of his sons was a Michael Shannon. And then he got, he left his wife and started a new family. And he was a piece of shit when he was with Michael Shannon's family and his, and his mom. But then when he went to, to start up new family, he was like good to them. And th- those kids are also grown up and he dies. And Michael Shannon and his brothers go to the funeral and just fucking talk shit and spin on his grave. <laughs> 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 and the new family, like they, it starts a feud between the two families, and it's a very interesting like story about you know like family and what people mean to certain people, and it's it's really deep. It's dark too. It's it's really beautiful actually. This is called um, Shotgun Stories. Yeah, Shotgun Stories. Yeah, that's 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 a story. fun. That's a good title. That's a great yeah, title. Shotgun yeah, Stories. Yeah. But uh, Take Shelter is about Michael Shannon's character who starts seeing apocalyptic visions. He's married to Jessica Chastain. He's kind of losing it. He's got a young daughter and he starts building this shelter for like this looming apocalypse that he thinks is coming. His wife is trying to help him and like, you know, like you don't know what's real, what's not, what's in his head, what he's really seeing, um, if he's crazy or if these are actual visions. And then at the end, you find out whether they were or not. I won't spoil it because you guys should definitely watch this. Yeah, <laughs> so it good. sounds awesome. 
that is my number one. Marvin, close this up, dude. Wrap it up in a neat little bow. What's your number one? All right. Well, my number one is a movie that's near and dear to all of our hearts. Oh. Uh, It is Sinister Star. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Okay. When I was younger, this is is a backstory for why I like this movie. Uh, Because it's not that amazing, but it's influential to me personally. So when I was a kid, then I saw The Matrix. I talk about The Matrix a lot, but it's because The Matrix made me want to make movies to begin with. And then it was the Blair Witch Project that made me believe I could make movies. You look at the Blair Witch Project and you watch it and you just just the act of how it's constructed, you go, you can do that. And then you read more about how it was made, what budget it had, how the actors were interacted with. And it's really like kind of innovative the way they interacted with the actors in that it was pseudo documentarial because they actually really scared them, right? Yeah, like yeah. they had them actually camping out in the woods and then actually did weird things at night and the actors were actually holding the cameras and doing stuff. Now found footage is so like such a genre now, right? And, and like, yeah. you know, if, if it's not done well, it's just annoying that you made it a found footage movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, like this really earns its right to not be the, it's not the first found footage movie by any means. But it's uh, it, it really earns the idea of it being found footage, and it's not like honestly, it's not a super scary movie, you know. Like especially yeah. in hindsight, like because like I rewatched it like a like a few years ago, I think, and I was like, you know, it does not stick with you the way it does back then <laughs> when you're when I was no. much younger and uh, just watching it, and especially you know, I was I was watching it during a time when I think I was more willing to get. Uh, sucked into the the um the suspension of disbelief of horror films. So I was like, "Oh, what's going on?" And you get you got you know you know it was in one of the greatest uh, marketing campaigns of all time, right? The Blair Witch Project. Or yeah. Everyone, yeah, yeah. So that's a huge part of its success. But also, honestly, a huge part of its success, I think, is just it's pretty innovative. You believe everyone because they're not great actors, but they're shot in a way that justifies that and then the final moment is a scary moment but it feels like it could really have happened like it's almost mundane yeah the ending it's just kind of a very odd ending i don't think i don't think i would personally ever want to make a movie this way especially in 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 a modern context but it's the movie that made me go you know what budget movies are possible it doesn't have to be like clerks and you know going into debt and gambling and hoping you're okay it can be like a like like a Blair Witch project where yeah. you 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 have a tiny budget and you decide you know what you want to do with it. It's not the greatest horror movie in the world, but it it really to me kind of set the tone for how I wanted to not necessarily approach the mechanics of filmmaking, but maybe like like the budget style. You yeah, know? just had a but, sounds like it had a huge impact on like forming your career. <laughs> well, but you know what I mean. It's just like. That kind of inspiration is huge when you're like, I can do this. Like, yeah, yeah. something awesome. I don't think they actually knew how much money they spent, but uh, it's somewhere in the range of I think like thirty to sixty thousand dollars, and it's like yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, like, yeah, it was attainable. I mean, like the yeah. You know, like, oh, I don't. It's have to possible. Be, it's kind of like oh, this is a weird fucking 
weighted reference this one. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> like if you're like into racing and you want to race cars, you, you you always look at it as like, well, my name's not Andretti or Petty. So I can't, you know what I mean? It's the yeah. same thing. Your your last name is in Spielberg or, you know, whatever the hot filmmaker is. The classic Scorsese. So well, like, it's also it's accessible yeah. to you. Like, oh, I, I can't you you're seeing somebody that just had a great idea and had a couple mm-hmm. of thousand dollars and he just fucking did it. You you just had an idea. You were, you believe in your capabilities given your constraints and you just went for it. Yeah, and hey, yeah. if it failed, it would have failed and you sure, but it was a success. And it's a product that are, it's a movie that they they can be proud of, you know. I coincidentally I was watching I I have the Criterion Channel um mm-hmm. app thing mm-hmm. and I was go- looking through like just like interesting interviews that they had and they had it like a they had a Q&A with Linklater, um, Kevin Smith, and a bunch of dudes. And one of the, the one of the guys they had was the 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 guy who did Blair Witch Project. And he was he uh, Kevin Smith told a story that so um, the movie eventually got distributed by Dimension Films. Apparently, uh, the movie it was before the movie came out. Harry Weinstein had given Kevin Smith a copy of it and said, "This I just bought this. Um, check it out. I think it's pretty cool." And he went home and he had watched it already, and mm-hmm. he left the tape out. And uh, his girlfriend at the time, who became his wife, <laughs> was was sitting there, and she's like, "Oh, c- could I watch it?" And he's like, "Yeah, she watches it's really fucking good." And then Kevin Smith fell asleep, but never explained to her like this. <laughs> yeah, is yeah. Fake. So she didn't have the marketing. She didn't have anything. She just thought, <laughs> and then she, and then Kevin Smith said, it's "Just some sort of tape." Yeah, she yeah. woke him up and said, "We gotta fucking call the cops. These kids <laughs> are still fucking out there." <laughs> <laughs> just freaking out and she's like no 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 and then he said that he literally because the story was he was telling a story because the, the guy was there and he's like he literally had to call the filmmaker yeah. to yeah. say tell them that they're fine and he's like oh, fine. <laughs> this is a fucking movie i made but she like it you wow. hadn't seen that well done like that before so like she yeah it people people weren't like, on alert back then for this yeah. type of thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's why the ring worked, right? The yeah, the marketing for yeah, the ring, yeah. like people, because people were like, "Oh, sh- what?" And then you know, yeah, like yeah, people they're yeah. they're leaving tapes. Like I remember once on a on an MUN trip in New York, we found one of the ring tapes in Central Park, <laughs> and we, oh, we like we took we actually put it in our suitcases and took it home, and then we watched it, and we're like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> what did we just yeah. do? Well, that's a fucking good list, Rick. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Maybe we will cut out the beginning so they don't know that you're just like, fuck David Coke. <laughs> <laughs> he just screams at randomly in the middle of the, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Um, all right, guys. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, have a good week. Mm-hmm.